and, and really, I think, made clear just how much power, uh, especially state governments have um, under their police power authority. You know, you think about lockdowns, it's really the the, um, the ultimate expression of government power to require you to stay in your house um, in a certain situation. I think there's some very legitimate questions that folks are now asking about just kind of how transparently our government makes these science-based decisions that not only uh, relate to pandemic response, but also a wide variety of regulation. That is Clint Woods. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is economic opportunity, specifically focusing on regulations. It was recorded on November 12, 2020. In the conversation that follows, you'll hear us use terms like community and vision. You'll hear us talk about mutually reinforcing principles. Before we get into the interview, let's talk about what that means. Americans for Prosperity Foundation and the the Grassroots Leadership Academy are part of the Stand Together community. A link to the Stand Together website is in the show notes. Now, each episode, we focus heavily on how our vision guides our decisions in the different specific areas of focus we're trying to impact. We call these areas priority initiatives. Our vision is very ambitious. We break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. This vision is built upon four mutually reinforcing principles, which we'll also discuss in the podcast. The principles are equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, and self-actualization. You can find the vision and the four mutually reinforcing principles again in our show notes. Now let's talk about regulations with Clint Woods, a policy fellow with the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, and Erica Jednick, the Director of Economic Opportunity Strategic Initiatives at Stand Together. In this conversation, we'll talk broadly about regulations, but also dive deep into how COVID-19 has impacted them and people's support of them. I hope you enjoy it. Well, let's start off. Erica, you've been on the uh, the podcast before, so the folks know you. But Clint, I don't believe you've ever been on the podcast, so tell me a little bit about yourself so everyone knows uh, who you are and, and why regulations are so important to you. Well, thanks so much for having me, Dwayne. So, so my name's Clint Woods. I'm the Policy Fellow for Regulations at Americans for Prosperity. I uh, joined the community uh, earlier this year uh, after uh, serving for the last couple of years as a an official at US EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, overseeing their Office of Air and Radiation. Um, and before that, spent a number of years running a association, a membership association of state environmental regulators. Um, so I'm very much a recovering regulator. Um, and before that, worked on Capitol Hill. So I get the opportunity to work with lots of smart people throughout our community talking about regulations that often uh, serve as barriers to, to people realizing their full potential. Um, at all the levels of government and trying to, to push back and, and reform that process and, and talk about uh, ways in which uh, regulation and uh, ways seen and unseen impact uh, uh, the American people. So really excited to talk with you. Erica, when we talk about regulations and we talk about our 
community vision? What are some of the objectives through, through the vision? What are our objectives that we believe will break barriers to allow people to, to live their most productive, their most prosperous lives? Yes. So number one, the overarching vision for economic opportunity with the Stand Together community is that people are empowered to earn a success, contribute to their communities, and live meaningful lives. And in the space of regulation, we're really looking for regulation that works. It should address significant public harm and evidence in design so that personal choice in a voluntary market really plays a powerful regulatory role in reigning bad actors. When we talk about regulations, you, I'm, I'm looking at regulations that work. It's not, it's not a vision of no regulations. It's a vision of regulations that make sense then. Yes, exactly. Regulations that address the public harm that, um, that can happen and also making sure that there is evidence in regulations. One thing that we found is that often special interests capture the regulatory process. And so sometimes I think we, we hear about regulations in the sense that they are for public health and safety, but the truth is that many regulations are the result of special interests trying to get um, cr- essentially special deals, right, and, and carve-outs in the market. So is that something you've seen in, in your experience, Clint, where special interests are coming in and wanting these things done for their own benefit? Absolutely. I think, as Erica mentioned, this, this idea of regulatory capture is really important, where you have a regulatory agency or some other part of government that's co-opted by a particular constituency, and it's often the, the, the regulated entity. Um, so you'll see a lot of regulatory systems. Sometimes this is in an act of, of Congress or the legislature. Well, they'll develop kind of a, a two-tiered system where there's different standards that apply to new competition and, and probably a little bit easier to beat ones that apply to incumbent industries. Um, and, and we see that across a wide variety of areas, whether it's occupational licensing, permitting requirements for, for building new facilities. Uh, there's really a system set up where um, the folks who have a large number of lawyers and lobbyists and accountants and can bear uh, substantial compliance costs with, with regulations are, are, are not sad and sometimes very encouraging that regulators crack down on, on their potential competition and really stifle uh, legal and principled entrepreneurs from competing with them and innovating um, in the markets they operate. Do we, would we consider like the minimum wage to be a regulation or is, is that a law? Would where does that where does that sit? Because I see, when I see people argue for the minimum wage, I see organizations like Walmart get in there and say, "Yes, do this." And so often, I think that doesn't hurt you, Walmart. You're you're you know a um, huge organization with billions in profits, but it's going to hurt your competition. So, is the minimum wage is that sort of a regulation we're talking about? So, Dwayne, I think it is, and 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 you know, it, I think there's an important distinction I think to be made uh, about what is a regulation. And, and, you know, that often when we talk about red tape being a bad idea, I think people are talking about heavy handed government mandates that dictate how individuals live their lives or how firms operate. Um, and that can come in a number of different forms. Uh, but it's important that, to, as Erica mentioned, that regulation and the, the act of rulemaking, the process is, is, is kind of defined separately. Um, and so, you know, some of the things that we look for in, in good regulation actually will result in a lot less heavy handed, burdensome, outdated unnecessary requirements on, on the way that, that people exist and, and relationships of mutual benefit. 
And so I think minimum wage is a perfect example. And you see a lot of others within the occupational space, whether it's requirements on ergonomics or other things that are very well-intentioned policies, uh, but ultimately result in uh, lower employment levels. Um, you know, if you look at small businesses, there's about 30 million before the pandemic that operate in the United States. And for most of them in their first year, they say that it cost more than $80,000 a year in regulatory costs. And so you think about that level of, of regulatory compliance costs and how it could inhibit your ability to hire a new employee or several new part-time employees or think about flexible arrangements. Um, and so I, I do think it's a perfect example of one where the intentions are good. The idea of, uh, of, of having uh, you know, a good, well-paying job that allows you to, to self-actualize makes a lot of sense. But often when the government adopts those policies in a very stringent and non-nimble way, uh, it ends up resulting in unintended consequences that really end up hurting workers, hurting the American people, driving up the prices for consumers, um, and really having the, uh, the opposite of, of the intended goal. Erica, can you pump your own gas in New Jersey yet? No, I can't, Dwayne. And I've been waiting. I'm not so patiently waiting. So we talk about trade-offs in that. We talk about you know, how it hurts consumers. Can you, can you give me a few ideas of, of first of all, why, why does New Jersey have regulations that say you can't? And how do those regulations then impact you? So the origin of that, Dwayne, is very interesting. It's actually from the 70s where New Jersey policymakers were looking to essentially manufacture more jobs by having attendance at the gas station. So it's not actually about public safety. Although if you pull up to a New Jersey gas pump, you will see a sign that says you are not allowed to pump your gas, right? And I actually, I know people who have been threatened to be arrested, essentially, where cops have come to arrest them for pumping their own gas. And again, this is more of a market play to Clint's point where there's not a substantial public safety issue. And how do we know that for sure? Well, 49 other states don't require it, right? And, and we don't see any issue there. And I think you'll see this in a lot of places, Dwayne, especially with the pandemic. There's been a spotlight on some of the, the unnecessary regulations. And I think just top of mind is actually the vaccine, right, against COVID-19, where we are looking at trying to get the, the quickest, most effective vaccine out into the market, out to Americans and available right now. And the FDA has put in a number of, of um, hurdles, essentially, to get to that. If I remember correctly, I think I saw something that said the vaccine could be out in October, but then the FDA put more hurdles in the way, and now it's December. Is that accurate? Dwayne, I, I, that sounds sounds right. I think there's uh, it's, it's difficult to have Operation Warp Speed in any part of, of the federal government. We've seen, I think, FDA and a lot of federal agencies responds, um, and a lot of state agencies respond to this pandemic by trying to streamline the process and trying to, to uh, eliminate red tape. But I think it's really illuminated some important things. I think FDA is a perfect example, not only on the years it takes to get a vaccine out. And obviously, we've had some really important movement at the federal level around right to try and the ability to use uh, experimental treatments. Um, but FDA restrictions that, that apply differently to in-home testing that has really been a barrier to innovation. And, and I think what the pandemic's really laid, laid bare, not just when it comes to healthcare, and, and obviously that includes vaccines, that includes telemedicine, that includes certific certificate of need laws that uh, 
often unnecessarily restrict quick healthcare access in, in a time of emergency. But I think it's really highlighted that a lot of the red tape that, that we've accumulated at the state and federal level is not needed and, and keeps us from, uh, you know, responding to emergencies, from uh, recovering stronger and, and getting back, uh, you know, our economic system that's important. And, and really, I think, made clear just how much power, uh, especially state governments have um, under their police power authority. You know, you think about lockdowns, it's really the, the, um, the ultimate expression of government power to require you to stay in your house um, in a certain situation. I think there's some very legitimate questions that folks are now asking about just kind of how transparently our government makes these science-based decisions that not only uh, relate to pandemic response, but also a wide variety of regulation, whether it's for occupational settings or environmental or safety and health or uh, agricultural systems, you know, exactly how do these decisions get made and how engaged is the public and are the people at the table just the folks who are being regulated who might be in favor of uh, restrictions that stifle future competition? And so I think there's folks asking some really important questions. And then ultimately, how do those regulations, uh, you know, impact the, the, the disproportionately, you know, the new small businesses or, or low income families that ultimately have to pay more for food or fuel or rent? Um, and I think there's some really important questions that, uh, that, that the pandemic has laid clear about just how uh, how unnecessarily uh, a complex and burdensome our regulatory system is. Let's talk about equal rights for a second. It's one of our, our uh, mutually reinforcing principles, part of our vision for, for a society of mutual benefit. How do these regulations violate equal rights or essentially, I don't want to, is abandon the wrong word? Are they abandoning equal rights? Because it sounds like a lot of times or maybe, maybe not a lot of times, but sometimes regulations are put in place to benefit for the express purpose of benefiting one entity over another. That seems to be a clear violation of equal rights. Yes, Dwayne. And I think we want to think about this as far as aspiring entrepreneurs, right? Because this country was really founded on entrepreneurship in a lot of ways. And having a set, what Clint mentioned, blocking new entrants into the market space, uh, marketplace, right? So if you think of, uh, we've talked about home baking before, right? In my home state of New Jersey and women who want to make some extra income by selling their wonderful cakes, cake pops and, and cookies and whatnot out of their home and how there's been a complete ban on that right now. Well, why is that? Who is actually getting to the regulators, the policymakers? It's the big guys. It's the big supermarkets. It's um, it's even certain regulators and associations of inspectors who want a cut of any kind of fee, any kind of business license fee in this space. And if they don't get a cut, right, they're not donating to to the legislators, right? They're not donating to the governor who's overseeing all these departments and agencies of regulators. And so I hate to be so cynical, Dwayne, but when we're talking about equal rights, is that aspiring entrepreneur, right? Is that 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 single mom in Sussex County who's trying to put food on the table and make some extra income with her wonderful tasty cakes, right? It, does she have a seat at the table? Are they really looking at evidenced harm? No, because there's been zero complaints in the state of New Jersey. But who is at the seat, has a seat at the table, right? Are those powerful special interests? 
You know, the the great economist Milton Friedman talked about this, uh, and, and he talked about it in, in the idea of, of licensing. Uh, you know, he said it's never if, if, if licensing laws were about public safety, you would expect to see the public, the citizenry being the ones storming the capitals and saying we need these laws. But it's never the citizenry that's asking for licensing regulations. It's always the, the plumbers association or the electricians. It's always the special interests. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're saying there. That's exactly right, Dwayne. To Clint's point, it's about who can afford lobbyists, accountants, lawyers, right? This whole um, army for compliance purposes. And in a lot of ways, it's tactical to keep new entrants out of the market and protect incumbents. Oh, I, I was just going to add, I think, uh, in addition to the, 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 the Milton Friedman reference you made, I, I, I'm often reminded of a quote from H.L. Mencken, the longtime columnist at Baltimore Sun, who, who articulated that, that modern society is largely marked by a series of hobgoblins that leads the populace to clamor for safety. And that's often the driver for our regulatory system. So I think it makes it really important that we, our regulators and our regulations identify the, the harms, the externalities are trying to address, and then are measured as to whether or not they accomplish it. And we've seen that as a really big problem uh, throughout our regulatory system, where we, uh, you know, have have a, a substantial impact on society, uh, but maybe not the intended goal, and may have uh, other unintended consequences that that are really um, important. And so I think that uh, kind of gets to, uh, you know, a broader question, and we see this across. You know, you mentioned kind of pumping of gasoline, and whether it's Erica or a gas station attendant, that gasoline contains a certain percentage that is from biofuels like corn-based ethanol. And we've discovered in the last uh, couple of decades that there's a variety of environmental, negative environmental consequences, and, and as well as economic consequences from that mandate. There's certainly a market for people who would like to purchase some portion of their gasoline as, as biofuels, uh, but there's also air and water quality consequences that, that we see as negative and that that regulation often doesn't respond to the, 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 the state of the economy and the, the state of gasoline demand. And even during this pandemic, it's exposed just how inflexible a regulation like that is um, that was intended to achieve very, uh, very, very uh, small goal of, of uh, you know, helping out a handful of, of folks who grow corn or, or blend ethanol um, into fuels. But I think uh, raises some more important, broader questions about how we how we review and uh, evaluate our regulatory system. I always appreciate the proper use of the word hobgoblin outside of Spider-Man comic books. So thank you for bringing that that reference into the uh, the podcast. What I what I want to talk about now is is mutual benefit because I am consistently told that that without these regulations, the you know the the rivers will catch on fire like they used to, and so these regulations are really put in place for our our own good. It sounds like you're saying. Some of these regulations aren't there for my own good. Some of these regulations aren't for mutual benefit. And I think that's what we're trying to get, aren't we? Yes, Dwayne. So, you know, regulation should be supported by scientific and economic analyses and really only occur in limited circumstances where the costs have been rigorously weighed against measurable benefits. And I think what some of those benefits are are, you know, Again, evidence public harm in some way and public safety, as well as property rights. And, and Clint can speak more to this as far as some of the um, environmental regulations. But I think we want to measure property rights and, and make sure that we're respecting those in this country, too. 
I'm, I'm looking at plastic bags right now because there are some cities across the country that are banning these. Uh, I'm not sure if there are any states that have. But I'm also thinking about how this problem could be handled outside of government. Again, going back to what if government didn't do that? What if government didn't ban plastic bags? And the reason I think that that could be handled outside of government is because we are often shopping at Aldi's. And I remember as a kid shopping at, at Food for Less. And one of the ways they cut costs is that they didn't offer bags. You, you put your groceries at Aldi's in a, in a box that they take off the shelf after that box is empty. And then you put your groceries in that. Isn't it possible that a lot of these problems could be solved by the free market? Could be solved by a lack of force? I think absolutely, Dwayne. And that's a perfect example. We actually saw some of the states and cities that have either bans on single-use plastic bags or substantial taxes rethink those policies, at least temporarily, uh, in response to the pandemic. Because um, obviously there's concerns about surface tran transmission of uh, COVID-19. And I, I think uh, some, some places, including I think Massachusetts and New York, uh, reconsidered those policies. I think the answer is, is more competition, is removal of those barriers to competition. We see that, you know, for example, in energy policy and, and some of the permitting and licensing and environmental review restrictions that really keep you from uh, innovating um, and, and building new power plants or thinking about new transmission lines and wind turbines. And, and it's really not, not a single uh, energy technology that's impacted, but all potential innovation. And, and I think it goes back to something that Erica was talking about. I think really, you know, we have to think about incentives. And, and I say this as a, a former regulator, you know, I just I, I, there's this concept of sort of the regulator's hammer, right? If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're a regulator, in many ways, you, you're absolutely well-intentioned. You go to work every day to do a job, um, but everything looks like a, a market failure that only your agency can solve. And so thinking about how to align those incentives so that our regulatory system is, is nimble and responsive, is transparent, is based upon more societal benefits than costs, and ultimately is regularly reviewed um, and, and responsive to, to the legislature that delegated authority to a regulator to, to, to adopt that policy, um, I think are really, really critical uh, checks on, on some of those incentives that, that regulators have to perhaps have blinders towards um, only a government solution to every problem and an unresponsive uh, uh, reaction to, I think, what are often bottom-up market trends that solve a lot of our, our societal issues. I can probably fill a... Um, cert, not a survey. <laughs> I can't, where you write your names on there. A petition. I was, it, it was coming to me. I could probably fill a petition rather quickly in favor uh, of supporting the mutual benefit of to-go cocktails during this pandemic. I know, <laughs> I know for a fact that there are plenty of people who like this, that there were some cities who were allowing it, but now they're, are they going back against that? And, and help me understand the idea there. Why would we want to why would we want to ban that? Why is that banned to start with? Any ideas, Erica? I'm right there with you. I would love a to-go cocktail. <laughs> and especially during this pandemic when folks can't go to the bar or their local restaurant, right? This is a way that not only people can get what they want, essentially, but restaurants could stay in business. And there were all of these really unnecessary regulations around to-go cocktails, essentially. Um, I know in DC, I've seen some colleagues who've posted about, 
these really fancy cocktails, like the margaritas with the finishings and everything. And I was wondering, how come I can't get that in New Jersey? And we've seen it sporadically around the rest of the country. Um, I'm sure a lot of these were born out of some of the the uh, essentially special interests in, in liquor and alcohol, essentially, and the government trying to get involved here. But more and more people people want that flexibility um, and the ability to to buy a cocktail, pick it up curbside right during this pandemic and and relax a little bit after work. And, and Dwayne, I was just going to add, I think this fits perfectly with actually another concept that I think is really important to, that, that connects up with regulatory capture. And, and this is popularized by, by an economist named Bruce Yandel, but the, the idea of, of Baptists and bootleggers um, who both, uh, you know, don't have much in common, but tended to be the most fervent advocates for prohibition. Um, and, and similarly, you see a similar dynamic where, um, you know, some incumbent industries and, and, and firms, you know, may want uh, to restrict legal competition, uh, to, to drive more people to their doorstep and 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 more customers their way, um, and and similarly, uh, folks motivated by obviously multiple different things may may have very good intentions, uh, ideas of why those restrictions make sense. But I think to go alcohol and and extends to a wide variety. Uh, delivery of groceries in certain states is is heavily restricted. Uh, home-based businesses and bakeries. Uh, certainly, there's a number of blue laws in states where you know you. You can't get a happy hour special on drinks unless you order a certain amount of food, uh, or in in some cases um, you can't order a drink. This seems crazy to me, but you can't order a drink at a bourbon distillery in Kentucky. Um, and obviously, there's a, a number of incumbent industries like restaurants and uh, distributors of alcohol and others that may find value in that existing regulatory system. That I think uh, makes it even more important that you open up that process and ask what's good. And, and will ultimately uh, improve societal benefit and allow the public to engage in that process uh, that's dominated by some of those interests. I can't believe that there would still be states or cities that would be justifying and defending the idea of, of a ban on grocery delivery today. And I, I'm curious if, if either one of you or both of you could give me an idea of I, I, I'm giving I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. And we've talked a lot about how some regulations are put in place because of special interests. But I think there are a lot of regulations that are put in place, just like you said, because because regulators and lawmakers, they really have good intentions. That doesn't always result in, in good results, however. When we, we're looking at the world right now in the middle of this pandemic, how many of these regulations that were initially put in place to protect us are now being seen as harmful. Is is this pandemic resulting in in the realization that some regulations are not mutually beneficial and actually do more harm than good? So I think, Dwayne, I think we've seen some really positive trends in, in the response. I think there's been a lot of municipal, state, and, and federal uh, government agencies and, and, and legislatures that have reconsidered policies, especially ones that really inhibit pandemic response or inhibit social distancing, you know, things like you need to show up at the uh, at the at the DMV uh, to to renew your driver's license obviously doesn't make a ton of sense in a global pandemic. Um, having said that, I think there's still a lot, a lot to go. Um, and a lot of, uh, of very significant regulations that drive up the costs for things that are basic needs for people in terms of 
food and fuel that enables affordable mobility so you can get to your job and the cost of your rent or mortgage um, that I think haven't been fully addressed. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that this pandemic helps bring people to a realization that some of those important fixed costs are largely driven by regulation. So if you want to build a new apartment building, right, most of our major cities have a desperate need for more housing, especially for, for low-income families. Um, many places, there's an, a de facto apartment ban through through single-family, single-use zoning. Uh, but if you're in a place where you could actually build an apartment building, 30% of the cost of building an apartment building comes from regulation. Um, and so really, I think there's still more to be done if we're thinking about lessons from this pandemic, ways that we can recover stronger, um, and, and some of those really, really costly, regressive, disproportionate impacts among the on the least among us uh, regulations that, that need to be addressed. I think there's, there's still some work to be done and, and still some opportunities for our community to, to, to help connect the dots there. What about the idea that that 30% of the cost for building, you know, you said 30% of the cost for building a new apartment building is regulations. What do you say to the argument that without those regulations, people would build build buildings that would simply collapse and kill people. Yeah, I, I'd say I'd say you would not be in the apartment building business very long. I think there's a variety of incentives, including the ability for others to compete, including a desire for the reputation of your firm and as well as, you know, a variety of other impulses. And I think there's certain the vast majority of that 30 percent does not come from basic uh, safety and health requirements. It comes from very irrational things like minimum parking requirements for every new apartment or home that you build, you have to have multiple parking spots as required in most cities in America. Um, you know, requirements that your apartment building has to be a certain square footage or that you in turn have to restrict uh, the, the types of people or the number of people living in an apartment um, that perhaps was well-intentioned, but also has some weird uh, sort of social uh, impulses from the early 19th century um, that that restrict the ability of people to cohabitate, right? We see in lots of big cities and, and, and around them, you know, folks in their in their 20s living together. And uh, in many cities, there's actually restrictions that say two unmarried people of the same sex cannot uh, cohabitate in an apartment building, which seems astonishing. Uh, but many of those things are still in the books. And I think really a, a testament to the regulatory accumulation where the red tape has built up, and there's lots of it that, if you really think about it in, in our current moment, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Erica, could you talk a bit about how the idea of openness plays into the the vision regarding regulations? Yes, and I, I think most about innovation, Dwayne, and the things that we can't even we can't even think about, right? Because they're so heavy reg, heavily regulated. So to Clint's point about regulators having very good intentions, going to their jobs, they're looking at everything needed to be regulated. And by that, we're really stifling a lot of innovation. Um, and, and even the openness for the ideas and the businesses that don't exist today, right? But that could. Um, one of these examples is a, a company, and I'm blanking on the name right now, but uh, before the pandemic, they were looking at having virtual eye exams, and they had set up a whole whole business concept, but the FDA wouldn't allow it, right? Just a blanket ban. There was never any kind of, this is not a, a public discussion, Dwayne, right? Should, should there be virtual eye exams? Uh, but because of the pandemic, the FDA was able to lift those, um, those, those restrictions, um, and 
because it's just needed, right? Especially with more and more people staying inside their homes. And I think about that, just multiply that across every industry. So are we actually, is our government thinking about, is this a public harm if people get virtual eye exams, if they choose to do so, or, you know, um, eyeglasses? We're not open to what the future may bring um, and, and really that potential missed opportunity cost. I think that's that's a very powerful point you make there about when we when we close things off through regulation, we stifle innovation. And that needs to, that needs to be recognized that it isn't just stifling the innovations of multinational corporations with with fancy scientists and, and people with multiple PhDs. When you look at throughout history, the history of innovation, most of the groundbreaking or many of the most groundbreaking innovations have come from people working in in average day-to-day jobs. The Wright brothers didn't have multiple uh, degrees and everything. They, were, they ran a bicycle shop. If there were regulations that kept them in place or kept them out of that market, who knows, you know, would we have given up? Because the people making airplanes for the government kept failing. So it could have been, oh, well, this isn't safe for anybody to do. Nobody, nobody do this. And I, I love the old saying that, you know, the Wright brothers didn't have a pilot's license. <laughs> so it, go, it goes to that also. It, it, the closing of this does stifle innovation, which leads us back to uh, improving each other's lives, that mutual benefit that comes with openness. Clint, can you think of anything else regarding openness and regulations that we need to maybe talk about? I, the one thing that comes to mind, Dwayne, is, is I, I often think about sort of the regulatory system as as a closed loop in a lot of ways and thinking about sort of the three branches of government it, it gets to this. So you have, you know, Congress or a legislature that, that adopts usually a very broad goal. We want clean air or we want a safe working environment and writes that down in legislation and then delegates their lawmaking authority to a regulatory agency in a very broad way. Uh, with the hopes that, that they they can figure it out, they can develop regulations that work, um, and and with some general uh, guidelines, and then and then that agency takes up the task. But you think about what a regulator often is. You know, they often develop the science and technical information that feeds in. They are you know staffed by people with certain incentives. They you know ultimately many regulatory agencies are also the enforcers, so they're the cop on the beat in addition to the folks writing the rules. And then many also have an adjudicatory or sort of quasi-judicial function where they uh, end up making making uh, a judge-like decisions and, and replacing uh, appointed or, 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 or uh, you know judges from the judicial branch uh, and making a lot of decisions. And then ultimately, when those regulations or enforcement actions are challenged, it goes to a court system that often defers to the expert agency, right? And this is kind of a progressive era idea that you know we have experts and and technical um, uh, capabilities at at a progressive style executive branch agency because they know better than than the people do, um, and then defers to them both on on interpretive and technical issues. And so ultimately, you have a very elaborate process, and there's some opportunities for the public to theoretically weigh in. Uh, but in in many ways, it is not open uh, to the public. It is not open to legislative accountability, you know, feedback from voters and people. Um, and so that's really what I think informs a lot of our recommendations for for how to reform regulation, more accountability, things like the RAINS Act, um, to have uh, the legislature take responsibility on the front end for a certain group of high impact regulations, uh, or thinking about things like sunsetting. We should have an expiration date for our regulations and, and maybe for our agencies. We've seen that work in states like Idaho and Texas. Um, similarly, uh, we think it makes a lot of sense to think about how you 
can align incentives for, for regulators to deregulate. And you've seen a lot of states and, and uh, in some parts of the Trump administration uh, trying to establish an executive branch red tape production program that tries to do two things. One, figure out how much red tape we have, and two, uh, try to reduce some of that red tape, especially regulations that are outdated, unnecessary, burdensome, um, or, or especially costly for, for low-income uh, households. And, and so I think there's a, a lot to be said for those options as a way to uh, provide a more open regulatory system and really kind of express what does good regulation look like and, and how can we be sure that it matches up with the consent of the governed. When you think about regulations, I think about our fourth one, uh, our fourth principle, the the principle of self-actualization. And I have friends that live in California and are dealing with AB5. Can we talk about that? We can do it. Excellent. I know, I know friends of mine who, who love writing, who love creating videos. I know I have friends who make money to pay their rent through Uber. And I see regulations out there that are destroying their ability to live their, their best life. Now, when we talk about self-actualization, I want to I read from a, a, a document that we have. Uh, self-actualization is the process of finding meaningful, justified success through the betterment of ourselves and others. Self-actualization isn't a single destination, but a lifelong journey that develops and changes over time. Friends of mine in California are having that journey halted or, or made more difficult because regulations put in place by, I'm assuming, uh, regulators and lawmakers with the best intentions, those regulations are keeping them from self-actualization. How, how often does something like this have, and how big an impact do you see AB5 having in California in this capacity specifically? Dwayne, we see this a lot. AB5, though, has gotten a lot of media attention, as it should. And just for your listeners um, here, AB5 is a bill that really gutted the ability for folks to be independent contractors. So think 1099s, think um, not just the entertainment industry, as Dwayne mentioned, uh, writers uh, or gig workers, but also even optometrists, lawyers, yoga instructors, um, not in California because they got a a carve out, but in other places, real estate agents, hairstylists, anyone who's an independent contractor, as I have been in in the past, um, was swept up in this law and more than 1 million Californians were swept up uh, under this law that gutted independent contractors. And we've seen really devastating effects here um, where folks, when I think about self-actualization, it's about also fulfillment, right? And having people to be, allowing people to live their version of the American dream, um, having flexible work. So for everyone, that's not necessarily a nine to five job, right? For some people, they might want to work mornings, evenings around volatile school schedules or childcare, or, you know, maybe I have a a side hustle where I want to build a business, but it's not a full-time opportunity yet. And AB5 gutted that ability. Um, the, The reason behind it is that there were very powerful special interests 
and unions looking to organize, and you can only organize full-time W-2 employees. So that was the real reason. You will hear things about um, uh, the other side looking for health care, but I think there's really great um, uh, market options out there for stackable benefits. So, you know, to your point, Dwayne, we've seen really devastating effects in California to the point that the legislature is now actually having to, to actually roll back some of that and create all of these exemptions. And that's that frustrates me so much when we see you mentioned carve outs earlier. If this is if this if regulations are good for one but not another, that doesn't sound like equal justice under the law. Am I am I wrong in thinking that? No. And even there was a, a question on the ballot recently in California that was essentially carving out Uber and Lyft drivers, right? Rolling back some of the heavy hand of AB5. And we've seen a number of other exemptions, including realtors who have a lobbying organization and that they pay dues to fund lobbyists. But so many others um, don't, they're not, they don't have lobbyists, right? They don't have expensive lawyers at their disposable, uh, disposal to go fight this in the state capitol. And so they're still very much hurting. Um, you know, there's a few Facebook groups I follow, so many different consultants, the entertainment industry, to your point, um, even writers. I saw one of the early regulatory uh, regulations around this was there was a maximum amount of articles one could publish um, as an independent contractor before they had to be hired full time. So what was happening is then the media outlets just fire those uh, contractors, right? Because they might not be able to afford or even need a, a 40 hour a week reporter on a certain thing. And, and many of them um, enjoy, enjoy the workers, enjoy the ability to go to different outlets. So it's just a very inflexible system. And to your point, Dwayne, um, when we're thinking about self-actualization, we should allow people to pursue their version of the American dream, even if it means, you know, they get to be their own boss, not have to work a nine to five, um, because we all have our own our own personal preferences and dreams. When I, I just finished, Clint, I just finished recently uh, Todd Rose's book, The End of Average. I don't know if you've, if you've read it. If you haven't... Um, I highly recommend it. Fantastic book. When I think about the the premise of the book that we are we should actually stop looking at people as whether they're above average, below average, but as individuals with their own individual talents and their own individual strengths and their own individual weaknesses. I think about these regulations and how often they are they are put in place and they don't take individualism or individuals into account. They don't take, you know, our, our individual situations. And we see them come from, from places like state capitals who have, who have no idea or, or maybe don't even consider how different life is. And I'm thinking of my own, my own world here, how different life is in Kansas City and St. Louis versus how different it is in my hometown. Um, and I guess my question is, how often is this central planning hurting people. And I say central planning because it's, it's coming from one central location. 
How often is essential planning hurting people because they're taking a one-size-fits-all approach rather than letting people leverage their individual strengths in a way that would help them seek and and achieve self-actualization? It's kind of a heavy question, but I I believe in you. No, I think that's it's a really good question. I think I think gets to and you put your finger on. I think the one-size-fits-all model is 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 one that doesn't work. And and whether you're thinking about you know, state insurance requirements. There's actually quite a bit of variability when you buy auto insurance around the country um, as to how much you need to have, um, and, and it applies equally everywhere. Uh, but some places uh, end up ended up costing a lot more rather than thinking about a menu of options and, and the kinds of insurance needs that you need, or, or thinking about state requirements that really protect automobile dealers and who can sell you a car. You should be able to directly purchase a vehicle from a manufacturer, theoretically. Uh, in no state in the country can you do that. Um, and there's some, uh, you know, some some chinks in the armor, and I think folks have highlighted some of these issues. Obviously, we've seen with Uber and Lyft a huge challenge to a one-size-fits-all, you know, taxicab monopoly in many municipal areas that that have created competition and, and really in a consumer-driven way and demonstrated those those relationships and, and cycles of mutual benefit that are possible through disruptive industry. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think very importantly, and I think as we we sit here, you know, looking forward at at, at a fair degree of uncertainty about what's going to happen in state and national policy, I think it's important to note that there's a relationship between our federal and state governments and our regulatory systems. A lot of our regulations, some are one size fits all for the country and their national standards that apply to everyone. And, you know, often that has huge costs if, if you're not catering uh, those to certain situations or, or areas where you don't don't have a, a certain industry operating or you may have unintended consequences. Uh, but also many are, are operated as, as sort of a federalist model, right, where you establish broad national goals and then have state governments ultimately develop and implement those regulations. And so I think it's really important to keep keep, keep an eye on that because there's a, a lot of connection between state and federal policy. I think there's often a lot of valuable pushback um, from state governments on, on uh, unfunded mandates that ultimately come down that require them to develop costly regulations that make them less economically competitive. And so I think the dynamics between different levels of government is really important when uh, trying to open up that regulatory system, trying to make a difference, because uh, ultimately some of those things that happen in Washington, D.C. Uh, get carried out uh, at, at your local government level. And, and, and so realizing that those things are all, all connected, I think it makes it even more important that we have a, a truly transparent and responsive regulatory system. We've talked about breaking through barriers. We've talked about equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, self-actualization. We're nearing the end of the podcast. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't really covered yet? I, the, the only thing I can think of, Dwayne, is just Erica mentioned it and I failed to follow up, but I think property rights is a really important consideration here. Uh, when you think about some of the, the regulations we have that keep you from operating a home-based business, uh, through permitting and zoning and licensing requirements or parking requirements or health and safety uh, regulations that envision you're operating a large warehouse, even though you may be doing that out of a townhouse in uh, a sub the suburbs. Um, I, I think there's a number of elements where property rights and, and understanding the, the notion of the tragedy of the commons and the value um, and, and mutual benefit that ends up emanating from strong property rights are, are often uh, at the expense of our, our regulatory system that, that presumes that everything is a, uh, a problem of collectivization that, uh, that, that, that the government is the only, the only institution can handle. I think property rights are really an important tool to understanding uh, both the progress we make outside of, of red tape and, and government uh, mandate, uh, but also understanding how those property rights are, are ultimately very important for, for regulations and, and who's responsible for uh, for overseeing that process. I, I think it's just the one element that we didn't quite touch. 
Once again, thank you to Clint Woods and Erica Jednick for joining us today to talk about regulations. If you have any questions regarding regulations or any of the other issues we discuss here on Top Priority, please reach out to me and let me know. Send me an email at toppriority at afphq.org. I look forward to reading your emails. Until next time, take care and we'll see you then.